Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I am the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today's guest has more than a decade of experience as a health, fitness, and nutrition coach. As a popular online educator, podcast host, and mentor, he consistently offers simple strategic methods for transformation and translates complex concepts into leverage for any health and fitness goal. Sam Miller, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, Lucas. I appreciate it. Awesome. Sam, maybe I'd love to learn a little bit about your journey and how you got so interested in um, health and fitness. Sure. So I kind of naturally fell into wanting to improve my health and fitness for various reasons. Some were more kind of aesthetic and physique goal oriented, which is fairly natural as a younger guy wanting to kind of build your confidence and, you know, improve the way you look. And you really realize there's so much more underneath the surface of that beyond the physical transformation. But I also had uh, kind of my own personal health history. And in my teenage years, I also had some family members who were having various health complications of sorts really related to cardiovascular health and caused me to go down a few different nutritional rabbit holes that I probably would not have gone down. Um, I had always been interested in sports and athletics, but I wasn't necessarily the person that was naturally like, 
the most talented or gifted in that arena. Um, through my active lifestyle, I actually ended up getting a pretty severe TBI or concussion for those who are a little bit less familiar with um, the terminology in terms of TBI, just traumatic brain injury or concussion can impact uh, a number of different systems, particularly your endocrine system. And at a young age, I kind of had this fascination around you know, testing and, and optimization and making things better naturally. Whereas uh, a lot of times the solution, uh, especially from a Western medic, med, uh, medicine perspective, if you are in the United States or Europe, Canada, et cetera, uh, usually is prescription drugs as the solution. And so I real, realized that through nutrition, sleep, stress management, the appropriate training volume and intensity that you can really make great strides with your health. Um, and so that sort of sent me down um, a number of different rabbit holes pertaining to metabolism, endocrinology. Uh, later on in my career, getting a little bit more fascinated by things like gut health, uh, but had always had an interest in health and performance, especially from a young age. But the health side sort of took a twist based on my own health journey and transformation and even having a harder time at certain points getting the results that I was working for. So whether that was spending hours in the gym and not necessarily seeing, you know, the hypertrophy gains that I was looking for and realizing like, hey, we need to kind of you know, get to the bottom of this, do certain tests and analysis, um, ended up even getting, you know, MRIs and scans uh, related to my brain and pituitary function. And that sort of just opened up the can of worms for me because it really exposed me to a number of different health professionals, endocrinologists, um, physicians from different backgrounds, and even uh, some folks on more of the alternative and holistic side at a very young age. And I had more of a personal training background. So I had already been studying um, and taking classes and courses to become a personal trainer. And I had planned on essentially that being like my side hustle while I was uh, at college or university. And so with that background, it was sort of a natural transition from just solely looking at the fitness side to having a greater understanding of nutrition and then seeking out additional education related to some of the more complex concepts related to hormones and endocrine system, learning about metabolism, and then applying that to uh, both my own health journey and then also client transformation. Awesome, man. Yeah, well, I'm really, I'm really excited to dive deep into... Um the nutritional rabbit holes that you went down maybe early on, I'd love to hear about maybe I'd imagine you're sort of guy who's experimented with a, a range of different dietary strategies and approaches. So maybe do you want to share with my listeners, like what you learned through various, um, you know, nutritional protocols and um, different approaches to uh, dieting and things like that. Of course. So naturally uh, where I've sort of come full circle in my approach is realizing that nutrition is very context dependent and there's a lot of nuance within uh, nutrition. There's there's some general pillars that I think we can all benefit from, whether that's related to protein and micronutrition, sleep hygiene. You know, there's some big rocks that we all need to pay attention to that I think are fairly um you know, they're, they're not really subject to debate at this point. We have a very strong level of evidence, both in terms of research and practical anecdotal experience and what we've seen with clients across the board in the profession to sort of substantiate that, you know, this is a pretty reliable thing, right? Like walking is very good for your metabolic health. Um, those are things that we've pretty, pretty well elucidated and can also see that happen in real time. Now, as far as my personal journey, uh, I sort of started off and honestly, not knowing better at the time, at the time of the head injury. And also just because I was kind of looking for this leaner muscular physique, um, it led me to under eating relative to my activity level. Uh, so initially had to learn even basic premises around reverse dieting and nutritional periodization. Um, but also later on then 
played around with different diet styles related to perhaps carbohydrate cycling or intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating and using those interventions to see how they essentially uh, work for me. And what I realized in that process is, well, the nutritional intervention is also subject to your lifestyle, your level of stress, the type of training that you're doing. And so really we have to look to sort of match uh, these variables together in order to create the best approach for the individual. And that was something that I noticed is there are certain times in my life where a nutritional approach was maybe working very well. And then there'd be other times where it's like, hey, you know, maybe this isn't the time for this right now in your overall recipe uh, for your health and fitness journey. And that was kind of an eye-opener for me because I think a lot of times early on, both clients and professionals alike sort of look at certain labels or terminology or frameworks um, or really less frameworks, but more of like a particular diet style. And they're like, oh, this works or it doesn't work, right? It's very black or white versus looking at it as kind of a gradient scale or like a dimmer dial versus an on-off switch of like this diet works versus this diet doesn't work. It's very uh, context dependent on someone's individual sort of uh, health history, biochemistry, and also their current lifestyle behaviors. Yeah. Now I know uh, before, before we started this podcast, you mentioned that you have a, a book coming out soon. So um, just referencing that for my listeners, Sam will have a book coming out related to the uh, metabolism, fat loss, things like that. So I'll be sure to leave that linked in the show notes for those listening in. But my next question for you, Sam, will be in regards to um, some of the pitfalls that people you know face when it comes to um, fat loss and different fat loss strategies. Let's dive into, I guess, what you've seen over the years where some people just go terribly wrong. I would say the biggest one is probably chronic dieting and caloric restriction without any type of seasonality. So folks who are exposed to the health and fitness industry bubble early on and understand perhaps that I need to subtract food or manage my portion sizes and increase my activity level. On the surface, that seems great, but there's an there's a degree to which that no longer um, is optimal for you or becomes less sustainable. It's not that we couldn't continue to try to eat less food. It's just that we shouldn't perpetually be trying to uh, achieve a deficit. And what I mean by that is essentially uh, my energy expenditure is greater than my energy intake or energy availability. And so sometimes you'll have folks in the health and fitness space who are very active, they're not, you know, a couch potato or metabolically, um, you know, unhealthy or insulin resistant, overweight with lots of body fats. And they're sort of restricting themselves to a degree uh, for someone who maybe has more weight to lose. And so one of the biggest issues I see is there's just kind of this lack of seasonality in approaches, meaning someone begins to diet and then they try to lose some weight. And then, you know, maybe they don't get all of the results that they want. And then they try to push harder and harder and think more is better. Uh, when in reality, better is better. And we also need to understand that we can have maintenance phases where maybe we're not always attempting to achieve that energy deficit. Um, And so that's that's really a common pitfall there, as well as the fact that when people remove macronutrients from their diet, they're often subtracting micronutrients. And so unintentionally, when we remove food or reduce our portion sizes, unless you're backfilling that strategically, either with supplements or certain food choices, to alleviate potential deficiencies or mitigate potential deficiencies, people do run into a lot of issues. So I see a lot of dieters and folks who are attempting fat loss who have actually uh, really been somewhat uh, 
some, somewhat, I would say, not necessarily absent-minded, but maybe naive to the fact that micronutrition is quite important. And when we reduce food overall, um, we are reducing that micronutrient intake, especially if you were already eating uh, fairly good from a food quality perspective. So that that's definitely a big problem. Um, the other would be maybe the case of uh, a yo-yo dieter or someone who attempts to diet kind of falls off the wagon and then engages in a period of overeating after that restriction. And that's unfortunately, we get some of the less favorable things from the diet phase. And then we also have some unfavorable consequences from the overeating. And you essentially end up with this sort of hybrid between metabolic adaptation and insulin resistance, uh, which can be fairly problematic as well. So those are probably two or three, maybe more so for your health enthusiast or fitness buff. Um, you know, in the Western world, we certainly have a large percentage of individuals who are just metabolically unhealthy. They do not necessarily exercise enough, strength train, walk, basic movements, um, and nutrition is fairly poor. Uh, micronutrient status is pretty poor. So that's certainly a subset as well. Uh, but I would argue that a lot of those folks maybe haven't attempted fat loss to the degree of maybe someone who is uh, already following a lot of different fitness influencers in the health and fitness space, and they're already attempting to lose weight and doing the cardio classes and um, you know following very low calorie macronutrient protocols or meal plans. And that's really where I see people kind of run into trouble. Yeah, good stuff. So I guess, Sam, I'd like to dive deep into macronutrient breakdown, um, specifically um, what you would consider capping the protein threshold. So for example, you may, uh, I'd imagine you've experimented with different ranges of protein, uh, you know, in your diet and with clients as well. So I'd sort of like to learn more about, um, is there a certain limit that you often recommend with protein intake and how does that compare to, and how do you consider carbohydrate and fat um, ratios there as well? Yeah. So in the big picture, obviously protein is going to be dependent on the recovery that we're currently achieving from exercise, as well as things like the overall intensity and volume of resistance training, the size of the individual. So I do like to look at things relative to, you know, uh, kind of a grams per pound indicator, or if you are outside the U S oftentimes that is kind of your, um, you know, grams of protein per kilogram and looking at that overall, um, I found Personally, for me, I'm able to follow a fairly high protein diet um, in excess of one gram per pound. Um, and it, for some individuals, if they are in a caloric deficit trying to preserve muscle, or if we need to use protein for satiety reasons or managing appetite, we may drive that to 1.2 to even you know potentially 1.5 grams per pound for a period of time, which can be fairly high for some folks. And the biggest thing we need to look out for is GI distress um, or someone who maybe has lower stomach acid levels or something has been having a hard time processing uh, that degree of protein. Typically, um, for a lot of folks who are just kind of getting into a healthier lifestyle, they may be just shooting for like 0.8 grams per pound to one gram per pound. And there's a huge caveat here, which is it's largely going to be dependent on your current amount of muscle mass, current body fat. And if you are trying to lose weight, we may need to be looking more at like your goal weight or target weight or your current body composition, as opposed to just your scale weight currently. Um, so I've had clients really range there. I do like to keep it above that like 0 0.75, 0 0.8 grams per pound range, especially if someone's active and exercising. But I have had exceptions and individuals who maybe even exceed that 1.2, 1.5, uh, which is relatively uh, arguably high by research standards. Although I think there's uh, a few ISSN journals that have sort of tested 
the the higher protein counts in terms of uh, any negative effects there. Uh, and then, you know, one thing we have to consider as well is if someone is you know, producing hormones endogenously, or we do have folks in the fitness community who are using exogenous hormones or performance enhancing drugs, which can sort of shift uh, levels of anabol anabolism, uh, you know, nitrogen retention, muscle protein synthesis, and their utilization of that protein. Uh, so they sort of reap the benefits of both the anabolism and anti-catabolic effects of those performance enhancing drugs. Uh, but I would argue also there are times, you know, of caloric restriction and intense dieting when even natural athletes can benefit from increased protein intake. So it's really going to come down to, I think we all sort of have a digestive threshold where we are comfortable and still experiencing good digestion with a higher protein intake. And we're still able to absorb those nutrients effectively. And then we also have to look at appetite management because protein is one of the most satiating nutrients. So if we were to say, replace that with carbohydrates or fats, someone may, may not find that uh, quite as satiating. Now where carbs and fats are going to come into the equation is a combination of personal preference and activity levels uh, of choice. So let's say someone's engaged in a fairly glycolytic sport like CrossFit, we may need more carbohydrate to support the activity. Carbohydrates also going to be protein sparing. So when we have something that's protein sparing, essentially means uh, it can sort of help us preserve uh, our overall you know, protein and amino acids and maybe lessen that overall protein intake a bit. So uh, one thing to look out for is let's say you were reverse dieting or trying to increase your calories for lean muscle building. We certainly need enough protein to support recovery and build lean muscle tissue and support muscle protein synthesis and get all of our essential amino acids. But if it's getting to the point where it's blunting your appetite and you need to be eating more food, we may actually bring protein down a shade, increase carbohydrate, um, and dietary fat to get the overall calorie content up a bit higher without it being quite as satiating uh, because protein really has that benefit of being kind of that powerhouse on your plate when it comes to appetite management, along with water and attentive eating and other strategies that we can deploy when someone is trying to lose weight. So my sort of personal end of one experience, I tend to go a little bit higher with the protein, but also understand that individual clients and people out there listening to this podcast may not necessarily be able to do that based on their digestion. And they may not also uh, need to go as high if they're not resistance training as much, or maybe they have less uh, muscle tissue overall or different body mass. So those would be some considerations um, on my side, as far as how I would look at protein in terms of dietary fat. I think part of this is just going to be having enough for hormone production, uh, getting a good mix of monounsaturated, saturated, and polyunsaturated. Uh, usually what we're focusing on with those polyunsaturates is really just omega-3 content, um, whereas monounsaturates and saturates are kind of more in that Mediterranean ratio of sorts, or for the listeners less familiar with that, uh, essentially leaning on monounsaturated and saturated fats as taking up a bit of a higher percentage of our dietary fat intake. And then we're sort of monitoring, you know, in terms of our polyunsaturates, getting enough omega-3s to kind of balance out our omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, because in the Western world, that's a very prominent issue right now is with the Western diet, we have very, very high levels of omega-6 fatty acids and a very high calorie intake or hypocaloric diet relative to what we've experienced in the past. So with dietary fat, that's kind of what I'm looking for um, in terms of that intake is, are we getting enough of that? As well as, you know, you have to think about, well, when I make enough room in my macros to consume a whole egg or lean red meat, 
I'm also getting a variety of micronutrients as well. So with the red meat, perhaps it's B vitamins, zinc, heme iron, uh, with the eggs, other fat soluble vitamins, choline, and other supportive nutrients that we need to, you know, kind of optimize our health. Awesome stuff. With um, be curious to know, Sam, with the like uh, the amount of fats that you can like recommending, um, particularly like you sort of said to maintain hormonal health. Um, is there a particular limit there or a minimum required to do that? I think that's really, really tough answer because um, you know I've tried to come up with general rules of thumbs, thumbs. Excuse me, a rule of thumb on it, and sort of changed my opinion a bit over time. Uh, I do tend to notice kind of less favorable things happening below that, like 0.3 grams per pound, 0.25. Uh, but I think we have to have the context of okay, is this a you know, female of reproductive age, who's supposed to be having a regular menstrual cycle. Um, is this, you know, a male who is producing testosterone endogenously sort of creating some context there, as well as things like insulin sensitivity and overall caloric intake, because obviously fats being, you know, nine calories per gram, they are a good way to drive up our overall energy availability in the diet which is important. And they, you know, oftentimes fat containing foods do provide specific micronutrients that we need. So I've tried to move away from kind of that black or white cutoff. Um, but I would say when looking at someone's overall program and intake in terms of maintenance, a lot of times there seems to be a sweet spot for a decent percentage of the population around kind of 0.4 grams per pound. Um, I think you can go higher than that, certainly, if you are bringing carbohydrates down and you could certainly... Um, there may be very brief periods of time seasonally when you're reducing caloric intake that you have to um, kind of adjust for dietary fats there. But I think there's a lot of variables in terms of, are you kind of relying on something else in terms of uh, exogenous hormones? Are you producing your own hormones endogenously? How high of a caloric intake can you manage without putting on additional body fat? And then, you know, also someone who's maybe, following more of like a low intensity resistance training program or low volume, not a ton of uh, other activities, or they don't have a super stressful lifestyle. They walk a lot. They may be able to get away with significantly higher dietary fat, fairly modest carbohydrate intake. And then we can adjust their protein relative to their training and their overall, you know, body mass and, and body composition, I think is a, a good way to look at that too. So fats are tough. Um, there seems to be some individuality in terms of response um, for carbohydrates and fats. And I think the key player that we have to watch out for is just relative energy deficiency and micronutrient deficiency as a whole, because that's a key variable. Like if I were to walk through a number of different client protocols with you, Lucas, or cases that I've seen over the years, a lot of times there's micronutrient deficiency and relative energy restriction, or, you know, like red S for a female HA, things like that, where we're simply not consuming enough calories and we're lacking very important micronutrients for hormonal health. So then it creates a variable around having that like specific guideline for dietary fat intake, because yes, yeah. fat is certainly important. And we know from a biochemistry perspective, yes, it plays a role. Um, however, there's really important other, you know, sort of elephants in the room that would influence your ability to like clearly articulate, Hey, this particular cutoff or this particular value is yeah. like the make or break from a hormonal perspective. Um, I certainly don't think either extreme is great, right? Like if you are super, super low fat and very, very high carb, um, I generally don't love that type of approach. And I also um, don't love like solely being uh, 
you know, like ketogenic or carnivore forever because we see some potential implications in terms of things like SHBG or sex hormone binding globulin um, when we do bring insulin levels down so low. Um, and that's also a byproduct of restriction as well. So I think we'd really have to parse through those variables uh, and look at a client case to kind of figure out what's going to be best for the person, which is why I've kind of zoomed out over the years. And I'm like, hey, we need this threshold relative to your body size. Um, we need to focus on some of these key micronutrients. We probably want to look at the quality of the foods in terms of, you know, is this providing monounsaturated fat, monounsaturated fats, saturated fats, polyunsaturated fats? Uh, what are your most common dietary decisions? And uh, also, you know, what is your activity of choice? Because once again, coming back to someone like I've seen so many CrossFitters under fueling, and we had to ramp up some of those energetic nutrients in order to, you know, support that activity and recovery. So I realize that that answer can be tough sometimes with the, it depends, but it really is um, something that seems to have proven to be true over the years for a lot of individuals. Yeah. Awesome. So I guess maybe shifting gears a little bit, Sam, we can sort of dive into, I guess, um, your approaches to improving insulin sensitivity. And maybe do you want to explain to my listeners what you define as someone as insulin resistant, how that may present, um, and then talk about specific approaches that you've, you know, had or taken over the years to assist with uh, improving that? Definitely. So in terms of insulin sensitivity, you know, we have biofeedback indicators like the lethargy after meals, or, you know, maybe some swings in terms of our hunger or energy levels between meals. Uh, we can also look at biochemistry. So fasting insulin score, fasted glucose, A1C, um, you know, over the years, we also have some newer tools like glycomark or C-peptide. Uh, in terms of those scores, usually it's going to be easiest to obtain fasted glucose and something like a fasted insulin. Those are relatively inexpensive markers in terms of drawing that overall. Some folks may have access to something like a continuous glucose monitor, like a Freestyle Libre, but not necessarily all clients have access to that data. So we could do something as basic as using a glucometer, which you can get at a pharmacy or or, you know, a lot of different um, sort of health convenience type stores, depending on where you're located internationally, uh, may or may not be available in the United States. You can even get it at like Target, Walmart. Um, you can order order them on Amazon as well. We might be looking at both like a morning and postprandial, which is post-meal glucose value. And uh, we may also just be assessing how you're feeling and how you're responding to certain foods uh, and certain basically meal sizes and macronutrient content and then sort of discern from there where we need to go. Now, if someone maybe has some scores that are off in terms of their fasting insulin, if they have, uh, you know, maybe some deviations or excursions in their fasted blood glucose, that seems a little bit concerning. We, you know, we want to look at food, of course, but I think there's sort of three underlying variables that are often missed when it comes to correcting insulin sensitivity, um, especially in the Western world. And that would be sleep stress management and sedentary lifestyle. So if you can sleep more and improve, improve your overall sleep hygiene, manage your stress, uh, because we can have sort of a phenomenon of cortisol induced insulin resistance from, you know, inability to manage our stress and sort of that constant HPA axis activation or fight or flight response, basically another word for um, getting very stressed out, having this alertness response. And, you know, our body actually uh, does a number of different things to sort of break down and circulate energy when that happens, which can create some complications, especially uh, if we are not uh, already fairly insulin sensitive. So for folks who are, who are maybe teetering on being insulin resistant, the stress can really sort of push us 
over the edge. Uh, so I definitely see that being a problem. And in terms of sedentary lifestyle, something as basic as walking, um, you know, there are studies where, you know, walking for 20 minutes per day and some basic dietary intervention, uh, you know, sometimes those, na those natural lifestyle interventions are near nearly as effective or even more effective than a lot of medications that are prescribed uh, from like a pharma uh, pharmacological uh, intervention. So where we have maybe a doctor prescribing something like a metformin or otherwise, we can really have some low-hanging fruit in terms of our sleep, our lifestyle, stress management, walking, moving, uh, moving and resistance training is fantastic because muscle sort of creates this sink or glucose disposal mechanism of sorts. And so I really do like to incorporate resistance training for folks who are insulin resistant. Um, and that could start, you know, with various levels of intensity and frequency, depending on the person, if they're total couch potato, getting back into things, we might just start with a walking program. If they're already fairly active, uh, we're probably looking at a combination of resistance training and walking. And then a lot of times for health enthusiasts, it's a mix of uh, potentially looking at meal timing, sleep, and stress, as well as some other variables like caffeine, um, maybe deviations or excursions from like maybe Monday through Friday, they're following a particular diet, but then on the weekends, they're making different nutritional choices like to kind of explore that. But um, my sort of big three are really uh, looking at that sedentary lifestyle, stress levels, and sleep. And then from a nutritional perspective, we can obviously look at the total quantity of calories coming in, but we can also make some macronutrient manipulations depending on the person. If they're more sedentary, we probably reduce carbohydrates a bit. If they are more active, we may still be able to accomplish this in somewhat of a balanced fashion, but the overall energy intake needs to be considered as well as um, you know the type of activity that they're doing. So I do like to get them resistance training and walking are really huge pillars for me. Um, and then looking at that stress component, because sometimes you have people with otherwise fairly healthy health behaviors, um, but they definitely seem to have fairly strong stress response, lots of ongoing repeated stressors, um, whether it's the novelty of the stress, whether it's unpredictable, whether it's kind of a continued threat of stress, some type of uh, trauma going on in their life. Uh, a lot of times that can impact uh, insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity as well. Hmm. You sort of mentioned like obviously some really excellent lifestyle, you know, adaptations and lifestyle behaviors that people can adhere to, things like that. What about in regards to, and this is something that I guess is like, you know, somewhat controversial right now is the combination of a high saturated fat diet. For example, um, I'm sure you're, you enjoy, you know, grass fed steak and organ meats and things like that. And then combining that with a high carbohydrate intake, let's say with white rice or brown rice in that same meal, um, what does the evidence suggest as far as you know a high saturated fat diet um, alongside a moderate to high carbohydrate uh, diet? So I think you know zooming out, kind of the biggest consideration, right, is at that meal uh, when we're making those meal by meal choices saturated fat or just any fat in general um, is obviously increasing the caloric content of the meal, um, carbohydrate content being relatively high. Now for someone who's, you know, maybe Matt Frazier competing in the CrossFit games, there may be some meals where he's consuming a lot of dietary fat, a lot of carbohydrates. If you're a NFL player, NBA player, or you resistance train a lot, or maybe you're a strongman competitor of some kind, um, there's going to be different utilization of that, as well as our ability to pull energy through the system. Um, as far as sort of the nuance around uh, saturated fats, 
monounsaturated fat, polyunsaturated fat, things like that. Um, you know, and we also have to consider too, I think on those meal by meal decisions, uh, I certainly have had clients who have been fairly okay consuming things like whole eggs, um, lean red meats, or even if they have uh, meats that aren't completely like, you know, over like your 90% lean, we have to remember that even some of those foods are containing both monounsaturates and saturates. So very rarely, I would say, except for maybe the exception of like, a coconut oil or grass-fed butter, there are some instances where it maybe is a little bit more saturated fat predominant. A lot of the times when I am increasing those calories, there's still a good amount of monounsaturated fat in there uh, along with the saturated fat intake. And um, the high carbohydrate intake, I think, is still coming back to that activity level again and your insulin sensitivity because you know that can be very, um, very, very important when considering overall carbs and overall calories. As far as... Um, you know, specific studies or research, I haven't necessarily gone down the rabbit hole lately of um, that high saturated fat, high carbohydrate intake. Now, in the Western world and the standard American diet, we do have things that do contain saturated fats, trans fats, carbohydrate intake, but we're not looking at single ingredient micronutrient dense foods. And we're also looking at a very different protein content. So different thermic effective food or thermic effective feeding at that meal, um, potentially uh, different amounts of various sort of polyunsaturated fats in there with a lot of omega-6 fatty acids. And I do feel as though that's a pretty significant difference. So a lot of the research we have isn't necessarily on super healthy individuals who resistance train five days a week, go for walks, you know, get walk several miles per day, sleep really well, um, and things like that. A lot of times the data that we have on those high fat, high carb diets um, are largely on individuals who are metabolically unhealthy already. And the foods that they're choosing that contain those particular macronutrients and subsets of macronutrients um, are not necessarily the same as, okay, I had grass-fed beef or I had a whole egg and I had some, some rice with that. So I think that is a challenge is like, there's not like a study on salmon Lucas eating that meal um, or maybe some of our, our friends and followers who are health enthusiasts and relatively active. So Research is a bit confounding there for me because I think there's some other other things we need to look at. Um, and research in general, when it comes to nutrition, exercise science, like there's there's some limitations, right? So we don't have uh, like a metabolic ward study or super like randomized control trial of, hey, these are folks who are 10% body fat and have ideal hormonal profiles and are getting eight hours of sleep. Uh, unfortunately, we you know the funding for that research isn't necessarily there. And a lot of our nutrition research is geared towards, unfortunately, sick populations and relatively unhealthy people. So um, I do think first we need to look at, okay, those those foods that we're picking, you know, are they pretty much like single ingredient foods, um, you know, with relative relatively good micronutrient density. And even in those foods that have the saturated fat, they do likely have some monounsaturates um, and other um you know, different types of fat as well. Uh, and then the moderate to high carbohydrate intake is still going to be relative to total energy intake and, uh, you know, also total calories for the day. So I don't think like combining them in one particular meal um, is a problem. Although I have seen folks over the years who have gone back and forth, whether it's your Dante Trudell and bodybuilding or, or other individuals where it's like, you're going to have a protein fat meal and then a protein and carb meal. Um, because I think we also have to consider for the individual, how is that protein fiber, dietary fat impacting, uh, you know, gastric emptying 
and the speed of digestion for that meal. Obviously, if I'm only consuming protein and carbs, I may have a different glucose response. I may have a number of different uh, sort of physiological reactions to that versus if I have the dietary fat in the meal. So I guess, once again, it sort of depends, but I do think the research we have is a little bit skewed towards unhealthy folks versus metabolically healthy individuals uh, making relatively nutrient-dense food choices. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit, Sam, I'd like to get your opinion on um, uh, meal timing. And I'd love to learn a little bit about like your own personal experimentation. Like over the years, I'd imagine you've tried experimenting with like delaying your first meal till maybe like 11 a.m., midday. Um, how have you found that to be like, how, how have you responded to that? And what have you learned about, you know, delaying your, your, your first meal intake to maybe like 12 midday and trying to get it all cram it back in towards the evening? Yeah. Yeah. That's certainly tough. Um, I've had a hard time when I have skipped that first meal, um, depending on the time that I'm training as well as, uh, when I'm going to sleep, it becomes an issue of then fitting in the meals the rest of the day. And then also leaving some time where I'm not instantly, you know, eating that last meal and then trying to go to sleep 10 minutes later. Uh, so I have tried both forms of time restricted eating or intermittent fasting where, you know, either pushing back that first meal or breakfast, and then also, uh, potentially having an earlier cutoff and moving my dinner up to be slightly earlier. I would say both are helpful tools in terms of managing your overall food intake for the day. Uh, I have seen some differences in terms of performance. So if I were to skip that breakfast meal, I do prefer to like move training a bit uh, more into the afternoon. So potentially had a meal prior to that and then have a meal after that. So have some bookends nutritionally around the activity. Uh, as far as the uh, time restriction in the evening, I think when I first started, I had to work a little bit on overall appetite management and like sleeping through the night after initially cutting that food off, but then my body did adapt fairly well, uh, rather quickly to, you know, let's say going to bed around 9 30 PM or 10 PM or 9 PM on the early side, uh, you know, trying to move that dinner meal up. So instead of eating at seven, maybe you're eating at six or five, and then, you know, you still kind of have that time restriction or intermittent fasting component, but maybe, you know, we're eating a meal at eight instead of 10 or 11, et cetera. So, Personally, I've noticed it to be very helpful from a digestive perspective to just have a break from constantly consuming food for individuals who are struggling there. I think even just 12 hours is a great place to start. So if you've never done it before, 12 and 12 is not so difficult that it's unmanageable, but it's still enough of a break where it can be a nice stimulus for your body if you've never done that before. So starting at 12, 12, working up to maybe 14, and then maybe you're moving to that 16, eight. Uh, I do notice that uh, for me personally, uh, if I have a tendency to kind of undereat a bit, becomes harder to get all of the food in when it comes to just necessary nutrients and overall uh, calories and total macronutrient intake. So that that can be a bit of a challenge, as well as fitting the nutrition uh, to optimize any type of peri workout nutrition or recovery, uh, which I notice can be a problem. And the fasted workouts. Um, then if you have kind of the stimulus of fasting, and if you like to take caffeine prior to a workout or you drink coffee in the morning, we're kind of tripling down uh, in terms of our sympathetic activity at that point in time versus kind of having a bit of food in there, um, you know, maybe mixing in some caffeine at some points for performance enhancement. But I, 
those are some of the changes I've noticed as well as uh, depending on the stress in my life. So typically if stress is fairly high, um, that can obviously influence appetite to an extent, but uh, we can sort of use food as a bit of a a buffer there. Uh, And I think when stress is higher, also fasting can potentially have an impact on things like testosterone levels and uh, thyroid health as well. Now that's not necessarily... Um, to say that that would be the response for every individual. I do think that we all have some individual responses. We all follow the same kind of rules and guidelines, but our unique response may vary slightly from person to person. And so for me personally, under higher stress, um, if I were to restrict food to a tighter time window, and therefore, you know, also that tends to impact my total daily intake, that can impact uh, my individual sort of hormone profile and biochemistry. But I do like it for, um, you know, general uh, cognition, as well as, um, you know, blood, blood glucose management, glycemic regulation and things like that. I think it can be a useful tool. And uh, I've seen some success with that with clients as well. Um, part of it too is the personal preference and, and your job. Uh, I've had folks who are maybe, you know, they're attorneys or they have a job in the morning where they really like to focus. And so skipping that first meal, they just feel a little bit more locked in versus taking a break and switching to um, have food. So I think we can look at segmenting the goal to is it cognitive performance is it physical performance and is this a season where maybe we have less calories coming in anyways where we can tighten the eating window or if we're trying to gain lean muscle or something we might need that time to get the extra meal in or that break i was talking about earlier that was being helpful for digestion sometimes cramming that food in like a six to eight hour window can then backfire from a digestive perspective because we have a hard time uh, getting larger meals in that time period. So that's kind of how I would look at using it as a tool uh, for each person, depending on on what they're working on right now. Yeah. Also like how you um, emphasize the importance of micronutrients. I know at the start, you sort of mentioned if we eliminate certain macronutrients, we're going to miss out on, we could be potentially missing out on certain micronutrients, things like that. I'd love to get your opinion on uh, vegetables uh, because this is obviously you know, somewhat controversial at the moment, I guess, like with the carnivore diet and things like that. Um, what is your stance on veggies? Do you think that they're essential? Do you think they serve a purpose? Like, I'd love to get your opinion there. Yeah, definitely. I've followed some of the banter myself. And I think the challenge is, right, a lot of the research that we have, like we have research on fiber that would say, oh, this is good for you. You're going to live longer. And it's very protective against uh, certain diseases and cancers and things of that nature. And uh, some of the confounding variables there is it's part of kind of a whole food matrix that contains other things, right? So if I consume, I'm going to use fruit as an example here, but if I consume a strawberry um, or a kiwi or something, uh, I'm getting some vitamin C, I'm getting the fiber, I'm getting antioxidants. There's other sort of constituent components of the food that I may be deriving some of the benefits from, uh, from a nutritional perspective. And you could argue that, you know, I, I, right? To just kind of summarize the carnivore and keto argument is, well, plants have plant defense chemicals and, um, you know, they're, they're kind of hard to digest and there's different components to it uh, that would be challenging. They also have anti-nutrients like phytic acid or certain foods have oxalates and things. That's sort of the argument on the carnivore keto side. On the vegan side or the omnivorous side, you know, we have vegetables contain fiber. Uh, they do have certain vitamins, maybe, um, you know, so-so mineral status, and that is compromised by some of the different uh, subcomponents of the plants, but they also do provide food volume. Um, for some 
folks, they are a useful tool for satiety and they are very low calorie, which means it's harder to overeat. And simply by being low calorie, that may have some protective health benefits as well, because we're not running into the metabolic syndrome cardiometabolic issues of overconsumption. So plants can be a buffer food for some individuals, meaning it helps them to not overeat because they're eating the plants. Um, now, the argument on the carnivore keto side is I can consume beef liver or organs or different things that are available in those meats that have vitamins and minerals and are available without any of the anti-nutrients. And some folks do digest that a little bit better. They talk about, you know, their overall um, GI health. And then you go around the functional medicine space and they're like, well, we need to look at the PCR test of your individual stool sample. And, um, you know, your microbiome is healthy or unhealthy, depending on what's going on. And you could almost do a whole podcast on that as well in terms of the arguments there and, and certain things that we may or may not be looking for on those tests and the certain pros and cons and pitfalls and benefits and all of those things of, of testing. And so where I've sort of landed um, now personally, I've adjusted my vegetable intake slightly over the years, but mainly based on my digestion. So it's not that I dislike them or have anything against them, but I do notice that certain things are harder for me to digest than others. Um, I do focus on still consuming other types of plant foods, uh, maybe for my carbohydrate intake or fruits and other things that are providing vitamins and antioxidants and things of things of that nature. So for someone who's really struggling with their gut health or having issues um, for a period of time, you may eliminate certain vegetables or things that are causing problems, whether they seem responsive to FODMAPs, whether they seem uh, to respond poorly to high fiber or high volume, raw vegetables can be a challenge for some people to digest. So rather than completely eliminating everything, I think we first need to look at how are you cooking and preparing these foods? Are there certain foods that are maybe greater, um, aggressors than others. So like for some people, Brussels sprouts are killing them, but they can eat some arugula and, you know, they're, they're totally fine. So I've sort of taken a little bit of, uh, uh, notes from each camp and then figured out how do we sort of customize this to the person? Because I also know people who can eat plenty of plants, zero GI distress, perfect on the Bristol stool chart, biofeedback's great. Their labs look great. Their micronutrient status looks great. We plug everything in a chronometer and they're still eating enough animal foods where that's not a problem. I think where we run into an issue with um, vegetables and plants is if you're only eating those and you're not having any of the animal foods, we are running a risk for things like potential issues with B12, iron, folate, uh, omega-3s, vitamin D. So if you are vegan, you just need to pay more special attention to supplementation versus someone who's animal-based and eating nose to tail. I think nose to tail eating on that side may lead itself to less deficiencies, but then there's the whole sort of debate around the fiber conversation. And I think the challenging aspect is while there's some great um, systematic reviews and RCTs and a lot of human evidence on fiber, um, most of the time when we're consuming fiber, it's in a whole food matrix that has a lot of other benefits. And uh, I still think we're learning a lot about the gut microbiome and short chain fatty acids and things we're producing from the fiber to where we may not know the answer yet on that. Um, I, I don't know that once again, we've studied this on healthy individuals. I don't know that we've done it in a controlled enough fashion to really assess, you know, oh, the, we only added the fiber via a fiber supplement and we followed these people for a year. Um, and then we looked at their, their different markers. I think that's very different than when people are allowed to eat uh, various sort of diet styles 
and things like that, or maybe someone's following a Mediterranean diet and someone and consuming animal foods and someone else is going completely plant-based and they're vegan, I think that's going to present some significant variables there. So I've kind of come full circle on this um, multiple times. I think there are instances where they're problematic for someone who's really struggling with it, like an advanced sort of progression of a GI dysfunction and, and gut health issues. Uh, but I do think there's a little bit of fear mongering now where all of a sudden, uh, you know, it's like never eat a vegetable ever. And I don't know that that's the answer either. So I've sort of landed a little bit more, you know, nuanced and situational as I do on a lot, a lot of things, which is not sexy for social media arguments, but, uh, it's, it's just where I feel comfortable right now. And also being clear that, okay, each food is sort of a tool. And we have to be aware that if I'm going to use vegetables as a low calorie addition to my meal to obtain fiber, I may need to pay special attention to micronutrient status if there's an issue with absorption in that meal. If I'm going to go animal-based, I need to be cognizant that am I consuming you know, any carbohydrate to manage SHBG? Am I getting fruits in to provide antioxidants and vitamins? Um, or am I only consuming, you know, that nose to tail um, sort of carnivore or am I on more of a ketogenic approach? Uh, because I think there can be some detriments and sort of defects to solely going that diet style, especially from a men's health and testosterone perspective as well. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at, Lucas. I'm kind of curious where, where you are with it because- I feel like we see a lot of banter on Instagram these days yeah. that would uh, make you think twice about it. Well, funnily enough, I mean, like I actually share a very similar stance to yourself. Like I'm not um, extremely reductionist. Um, I actually personally think there are certain veggies that are highly beneficial for a range of factors, specifically like gut health and um, improving stool quality, things like that. I do think that there are certain veggies that, most people don't respond well to like, for example, um, raw spinach, um, some of the cruciferous veggies, I think some people respond quite negatively to, but I mean, as a naturopath, like studying naturopathy, like that, it was the one thing that all the lecturers would like drive home. They're like, make sure you eat your veggies. Like we want to increase short chain fatty acid production through, you know, um, uh, fermentable fibers and things like that. But, um, what I'm really excited about is like, any future research in this field, in this realm is going to be like, I'm curious to know what actually happens to the human body if we completely eliminate, you know, um, these veggies in human studies, which I'm hoping we'll, we'll see some more of. I think there's only like a couple out there. Um, right. But yeah, we, we do share a very, a very similar stance as far as like um, considering veggies as part of a holistic diet approach. Yeah. And I do include some, and I agree, you know, even looking at, um, you know, I mentioned arugula, but I know some people can tolerate, for example, maybe they can eat bok choy, but they can't do the cruciferous vegetables, or they can do like a red bell pepper, but they can't do other things, or they can do like a squash or, um, you know, I think the more that you're eliminating specific leafy vegetables and cruciferous vegetables, you need to look at, well, is my carb source a sweet potato or am I eating like a relatively non-nutrient dense starchy carbohydrate from some other sort of package source. I think it's, you have to pay special attention to that as well as your emphasis on the fruit as the vegetables are removed, because you do potentially run some nutritional deficiencies as well as, okay, now where are we getting the antioxidants from other than potential supplement uh, supplementation? And I think that's important from like an oxidative stress and balancing yeah. overall health, mitochondrial function things of that nature. I think on the animal based side, you do benefit from, you know, the choline and supporting methylation. And there's a lot of great things there, 
but I, I don't think we completely want to exclude, you know, the anti antioxidant status aspect, um, as well as the fact that a lot of people do have a hard time buffering and managing appetite and, yeah, you know, those, those greens or certain, certain plant foods are able to um, be combined with the protein and carbohydrate to just increase satiety overall. Um, but really, you know, as I was sort of writing my book, this, this is something I went back on in the fiber section. And I was like, you may or may not be okay with X amount of fiber. And just really like, because the more people I see, I'm like, well, there's pretty much a range in the human diet of where some people, there's a very clear threshold of they start to struggle above a certain point. Um, but we also know that, you know, the increase in fiber seemed to be good for all cause mortality, cancers, like all these different things where there's supportive data um, from a health perspective around some of these plant foods. So where I kind of came with it is like, I think we can eat them to the level that we can tolerate it from a digestive perspective, similar to things like protein. And if it begins to bother your digestion and your biofeedback is poor, we've reached a point where if stool quality is bad or you're, you're going too frequently, um, you begin to feel uncomfortable or distended after meals, then that's probably not the best choice for you. We either need yeah. to rotate the food or decrease the amount of food. And I've seen that a lot with uh, fitness competitors and people who are making, like you mentioned spinach, and they're just making like massive, you know, meals with, with these greens to try to offset um, their low calorie diet and their appetite. And it does create a lot of GI issues and GI stress, but I'm definitely not full blown on like the uh, animal based, I almost said animal kingdom, uh, which was a very like Lion King type moments, but animal based, you know, I think there's some interesting things that have come about um, from that sort of lifestyle and speaking, you know, uh, of some of the benefits, but I also think there's still a lot of um, data that we have on the other side where it would be really hard to, you know, be super reductionist, like you said, um, as well as the fact that it's like nutrition and eating is something that you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. And some people require a certain level of, um, you know, variability and variety in that palette to where they're actually going to stick with it, sustain it and be able to go kind of live their life. Um, now there are some folks that that doesn't bother them and they'll just literally order a steak and they're good. Uh, but I do think that that's part of the conversation too, is, what um, people can actually do in their life as humans being people. And that gets lost in the nutrition conversation a lot when people are arguing on social media. And I do think a huge aspect of it, Lucas, is like it brings attention on social media. And a lot of these folks have some sort of product or diet or something that they're able to sell and monetize where this extreme polarity um, or sort of differentiation in their marketing, in their conversation, uh, does benefit them from an attention perspective right now um, on social media. So I think that's a key variable as well is, you know, will these people still be saying this 10 years from now? I'm not so sure. And, uh, you know, sometimes the way that we're talking about this isn't always like the sexy attention drawing, attention seeking way. And so then we end up over here with like, you know, our decent sized audiences, but we're certainly not at like 3 million walking yeah. around with like a femur bone in our hands. Um, so maybe that's a future collab for another time. With a, with a dog called ribeye as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And none of my dogs are called, I got three dogs, but no, no ribeyes in the family just yet. But I also don't have any uh, dogs named after cruciferous veg veggies. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I'm kind of middle of the road on that too. Yeah. Actually, the other the other point I forgot to emphasize, I guess, with um, the importance of veggies there, Sam, was actually the um, 
because I'm someone who loves to learn about phytochemicals and antioxidants and like resveratrol, terostilbene, all these amazing plant-based chemicals, um, I forgot to mention the importance of that as far as improving um, various parameters associated with like cancer risk and tumor development. Like we absolutely know that a lot of these phytochemicals are beneficial for suppressing inflammation in the brain, perhaps even improving liver function or even improving endothelial function, which we cannot get from just from meats alone. So here's the yeah. trade-off between like um, longevity versus like going on a carnivore diet is going to be perhaps more beneficial for building muscle. But then there's that trade-off between like longevity and building muscle that that sort of discussion comes up as well. Yeah. Things like anthocyanins and, you know, well, I could consume, you know, and this is where I've sort of started to, to do a double take, right? Is, is there a way that we could consume some of the plant foods with certain phytochemicals, antioxidants? Um, so like anthocyanin containing foods, we've got red raspberries, blueberries. Um, so raspberries, for example, have a good bolus amount of fiber and they can be a tool for managing appetite. They're also providing certain vitamins, um, but they also have some of these unique plant compounds in there, as well as something like blueberries. And we're getting different colors in the diet. Um, and then maybe it's, you know, certain vegetables that we're looking at, we're getting certain colors, certain phytochemicals, certain antioxidants. Um, but, you know, finding for, for the client, which are the least, di- you know, from a digestive perspective, which are the least offensive, and then incorporating those and then beginning to branch out and incorporate some variety, I think is a fairly decent strategy that I found to be helpful right now. I may evolve and change. That was one of the hardest things. I don't know. I know you have a book as well, Lucas, is like putting it on paper and being okay that it's going out into the world. Whereas with a podcast, it's like you can hit record and update your philosophy on something on a weekly basis or monthly basis. Or, hey, I learned this this week, guys. Like, I'm going to share this with you. But writing it in a book is really challenging because, you know, you're putting your ideas on paper. And, you know, part of science is like continuing to test those ideas and continuing to formulate new approaches to things and new frameworks and, and seeing new cases. And so that was really, really challenging uh, because I was at a bit of a crossroads there in terms of my personal journey, as well as what I'd seen uh, with clients as well. But I'm glad you did mention uh, the different unique sort of plant compounds in there um, and some that can be beneficial, whether it's based on certain pigments or otherwise. Um, I think it, you know, it certainly is part of the conversation for sure. Yeah. My final question to you, Sam, is in regards to, I don't know if you're similar to myself as like a, as a bit of a nerd. I don't know if you're the type of guy who's also done this and set up um, like notifications on PubMed, for example. I'd be curious to know if there's a particular area of research that you're really excited to see more data on. Like that can be, pick any area that you met, like could be microbiome, it could be, protein or things like that but is there a particular area that you're like really excited to see more research on i think the conversation we had today was certainly one of them if i had to pick three like because i think one is very hard especially with all the cases that we see i would say um, one is definitely this last conversation that we had around things related to fiber uh, the microbiome longevity health things of that nature I also do work with a lot of women's health coaches and health professionals, practitioners who work with a lot of women's health cases. And for a very large period of time, really up until 
late 90s, even early 2000s in nutrition, exercise science, endocrinology. uh, I would say women were fairly underrepresented in a lot of the research out there. And so seeing some of that data um, is something that, that I think I would be able to use to help a lot of people. So even if it's not personally of benefit to me, I get a lot of questions in those areas. And a lot of times I have to rely on, you know, different sort of mechanistic thought processes, as well as, you know, extracting from past data that we have uh, and anecdote and client evidence and things of that nature and case studies. But it would be really cool to have some additional additional things there, especially on the like endocrinology side of things. Um, I also think that uh, hormone replacement therapy is kind of, you know, uh, come into the conversation and, you know, along with this is sort of a side note related to that endocrine system aspect. I think we're at a crossroads and history as well, where this is like the first time that we've had women for decades on hormonal birth control, where it's been literally from like your teenage years until menopause, there've been women who have been taking hormonal contraceptives. And we have the initial data is largely on efficacy and does it work for contraception? And then was it safe within the time period of the study of the trial? There wasn't multi-decade use of the particular product. And I am sort of curious to see how that plays out. Um, I do also think there's on, on the flip side of that, more bioidentical therapies and HRT and things sort of got uh, the brunt of some pretty bad data and things like the Women's Health Initiative and the Premarin study that was really, really unfortunate. And so while we have some improvements in that area, I think practitioners have come a long way. Uh, the research is still sort of molding and 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 shifting to head that direction as well. Um, so those are probably two or three carry. I definitely think the microbiome is one. Um, I think I would the other category would really be probably endocrine system stuff and uh, men's and women's health specifically. Yeah, awesome. So Sam, I want to get my um, you know give my listeners a chance to connect with you online if they want to try and find your content. Um, I know you mentioned your book you said was coming out this Tuesday. Um, So maybe do you want to share details about all of that? Of course. So the book is coming out November 1st. It's called Metabolism Made Simple, Making Sense of Nutrition to Transform Your Metabolic Health. Uh, Really walks through. Now, I will tell you guys, this is not a diet book. It is definitely more of a critical thinking methodology framework. How do I approach nutrition and think about metabolism type book? I think one of the biggest problems we have in the health, fitness and nutrition industry as a whole is people know that there's different diets out there, but they don't really, they never learn metabolism and they never really learn to understand nutrition and how to make individualized decisions really like Lucas and I were talking about today on the show. So that was a big uh, sort of impetus for me writing the book as well as my own personal health journey and helping a lot of other people along the way. In terms of my platform, I'm pretty much Samuel Science across the board. So samularscience.com. My podcast is also Samuel Science and Instagram as well. And through those, I essentially post a fair amount of no-cost content, very, uh, very much spending a lot of my time on the podcast and regularly contribute on Instagram and things. Although um, I'm kind of trying to extract myself a bit from the Facebook, Instagram conversation at times, uh, because I think it can be, be a little bit uh, of a struggle from like a personal health and uh, overall sort of toxicity perspective, but I'm still posting content there. You can still find it. Um, there's a lot of other great sort of resources, links, workshops, and things off of my website as well, similar Um, The book will go live um, 
but the easiest way to go through and get patched through to a site where you can order is going to be metabolismmadesimple.com. Um, but I know there are some international listeners here, but that should be able to be obtained on Amazon uh, as well for those who are interested. So definitely appreciate the opportunity to share that, Lucas. Um, and I'm excited because this is, you know, first kind of big, big book launch from from that perspective and curious to see what people think. I'm sure it'll be a mix of some some good reviews and the occasional troll telling me uh, about protein or veggies or one or the other. We'll see. We'll see. But I, I definitely, I love that. I love that URL that you've secured. I'll make sure to leave those linked in the show notes for those listening in. But uh, yeah, Sam, it was a pleasure chatting today. I, I really had a lot of fun and I um, I love getting other perspectives and different different ideas on the podcast. And I know my listeners will have really enjoyed this podcast. So yeah, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it, Lucas. Thank you. Awesome. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.